Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Were you upset by the first presidential debate? How could two grown men act like they did, interrupting one another, throwing insults at one another, throwing mud at one another? They weren't listening to one another. They weren't trying to get to the truth. They were just going after one another, and it was embarrassing. Well, if you think the debate that you witnessed was just a reflection of our entire polarized nation, you're absolutely right. It wasn't just them on the platform. We were on the platform because that's the way our country is now. We don't listen to one another. We just scold one another. We cancel one another. We don't actually have debates anymore. We just try and shut people down. So here's my question. Why is our world split? And this isn't going to be all about the debate this show. We're just starting off with the debate to illustrate that, yes, our country is split. And for this, for a penetrating analysis of this, we're going to go back to 42 years to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, many of you may not have heard the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn was born in 1918 in Russia, and uh, he served in the Red Army in World War II. And in February of 1945, the war's still going on. You know, the Russians are, are coming from the east to take over, uh, to take the Nazis out. And, of course, we're coming from the south and the west. And Solzhenitsyn wrote a letter to a friend, a private letter, criticizing the leader of the Soviet Union at that point, Joseph Stalin, and in February of 1945, he was interrogated and ultimately sent to a concentration camp somewhere in Russia, probably somewhere in Siberia, for eight years just for writing a letter that was critical of Joseph Stalin. Anyway, eventually he was kicked out of Russia in 1974, and he came to the United States. And while he was in the concentration camp and after that, he began to write. And... Uh, he won some prizes for his writing, and we'll get into some of his writings as we go. But what I really want to focus in on is a lecture, a presentation he gave, a speech he gave at Harvard's 1978 commencement. So this is 42 years ago. Now, this speech could have been written today, given what he's talking about. Now, I'm going to go through some of this. I can't go through the whole thing. It's, it's an hour-long speech. But I'm pulling portions out because Solzhenitsyn was almost like a prophet <laughs> in the sense that not just somebody predicting the future, but somebody who could speak truth into the culture. So prophecy is not just about what's going to happen in the future. It's also about speaking truth to the culture as to what is going on. And here's how this, this presentation or this commencement speech began. Harvard's motto is Veritas, which of course means truth. Many of you have already found out and others will find out in the course of their lives that truth eludes us if we do not concentrate our attention 
totally on its pursuit. But even while it eludes us, the illusion of knowing it still lingers and leads to many misunderstandings. Also, truth seldom is pleasant. It is almost invariably bitter. There is some bitterness in my speech today, too, but I want to stress that it comes from not from an adversary, but from a friend. Okay, that's the opening of the speech that Solzhenitsyn gave. And it reminds me of a couple of things, and that is many of us can't handle the truth, as Jack Nicholson said. We don't want the truth. We want to suppress the truth because the truth is bitter. The truth might get in the way of what we want to do. We want to suppress the truth to go our own way, to do our unrighteous things. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1. And many of us are not on a truth quest. We're on a happiness quest. We're just going to believe whatever we think is going to make us happy. This is why I always ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I ask that of atheists and non-believers whenever I go to a, a college campus and we have some interaction. And very frequently, the answer is no. I won't be a Christian even if it's true. Well, why not? Well, it's just going to get in the way of what I want to do. Oh, okay. Well, you make your choices. So truth is something that will elude us unless we concentrate our attention totally on its pursuit, said Solzhenitsyn, and too often we want to suppress that truth. He goes on. The split in today's world is perceptible even to a hasty glance. Any of our contemporaries readily identifies two world powers. Now he's speaking of the United States and the Soviet Union. Each of them already capable of entirely destroying the other. However, understanding of the split is often, it often is limited to its political conception. That danger may be abolished through successful diplomatic negotiations or by achieving a balance of armed forces. The truth is that the split is so much more profound and a more alienating one, that the rifts are more than one can see at first glance. This deep manifold split bears the danger of manifold disaster for all of us in accordance with the ancient truth that a kingdom, in this case our earth, divided, divided against itself can't stand. Now, as I mentioned, he's talking about the split between the Soviet Union and the U.S., but today this could be the, the description of the split between the right and the left in this country right now that a house divided itself or a kingdom divided against itself or a country divided against itself cannot stand. And so what I want to say, this is kind of the theme of what I want to talk about here today, is that we always need to remember this. You have much more in common with your political opponent than your disagreements may, may, may imply. What do I mean by that? You're both made in the image of God. Even if your political opponent doesn't treat you as such, or doesn't treat you as if that were true, you need to treat him or her that way. You have much more in common with your political opponent than your disagreements might imply. We ought to be respectful with one another, and we ought to realize that we're all made in the image of God. We may disagree politically, fervently, but we shouldn't dehumanize our opponents. And Solzhenitsyn will actually get into this as we go. Here's what, here's, here's what he says as he continues. A decline in courage may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notices in the West in our days. Remember, he's saying this in 1978. The Western world has lost its civil courage, both as a whole and separately, in each country, each government, each political party, and, of course, the United Nations. Such a decline in courage 
is particularly noticeable among the ruling groups in the intellectual elite, causing an impression of loss of courage by the entire society. Of course, there are many courageous individuals, but they have no determining influence on public life. And he goes on to say, should one point out that from ancient times, declining courage has been considered the beginning of the end. Now, this is me speaking. Courage is needed in our country against the cancel culture, for example, against the threats to our nation. We need to stand up and say, this is not right. We need to stand up and say, if racism isn't right, and it isn't, that's not right. But we also need to stand up and say, riots aren't right either. And even if people are going to shout us down for that, we need to stand up. Look, it may have been Churchill who said this. Churchill normally said all great things. Courage is the first of all virtues because without it, you won't do anything else. You have to have courage. Now, there used to be a proverb, probably it's still in Russia. The Russian proverb was, the tallest blade of grass gets cut down first. That's why people don't have courage. If they stand up, they're going to get cut down. Well, it's getting to the point in our culture, if you don't stand, if, if, if you stand up, you're going to get cut down too. But we have to have courage. We have to do what's right. And the problem is, in our country right now, instead of using facts as our arbiter, we're using power as our, as our arbiter. Because we're trying to get people to adhere to our preferences rather than objective facts. So what can we do about that? I'm going to talk about it right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Website, crossexamine.org. That's crossexamine with a D on the end of it, .org. We also have an app, two words in the app store, cross-examine. Check out our YouTube channel, cross-examine. Facebook pages, Instagram. We got it all, friends. Dr. Frank Turk, CN2. Why is our world split? Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. We're... We're kind of riffing off a speech by Alexander Solzhenitsyn from 42 years ago, the Russian dissident who spent eight years in a gulag and became an author. And we're going to get into some of his writings here in a few minutes. But this speech at Harvard University 42 years ago could have been written today. And it really puts our finger as to why our country is split. Now, just before the break, we were talking about the fact that we're not really using facts to settle our debates. We're just trying to use power to get people to adhere to our preferences rather than objective facts. And ladies and gentlemen, this is what we call the fruit of moral relativism. I mean, if everyone gets to make their own right and wrong, then we don't have a shared standard of right and wrong. We can't reason or debate our way to the right moral position because according to moral relativism, there is no right moral position. All we can do is try to impose our moral position by power, not by debate, not by reason, not by moral persuasion, but by power. This is why moral relativism, ironically, leads to intolerance. Because you can't have a standard or you don't have a standard that we both agree on and say, well, let's just see who's closer to the standard. Whoever's closer to the standard is right. Not just I have my preference and I'm going to force my preference on you. Now, Solzhenitsyn actually says this in his most famous work, the Gulag Archipelago, which really, Gulag is a a Russian acronym for a concentration camp, and Archipelago, as you know, is an island. So it's really the 
The concentration camp island, you could probably translate this book. And here's what he says about ideology in this book. And, and this relates his experience in the concentration camp, as well as many interviews he did, his research into it. I think he won a, a, a Nobel Prize for this book. Anyway, here's what he says. Ideology, that is what gives evil do- doing its long-sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. That is the social theory which helps to make his act seem good instead of bad in his own and others' eyes. That was how the agents of the Inquisition fortified their wills, by invoking Christianity, the conquerors of of foreign lands, by extolling the grandeur of the motherland, the colonializers by civilization, the Nazis by race, and the Jacobins. There were the French revolutionists who instigated the Reign of Terror in 1794 in France. They did it by saying, oh, We're pushing for equality, brotherhood, and the happiness of future generations. Without evildoers, there would have been no archipelago. In other words, without evildoers, there would have been no concentration camp. Because there was an ideology that said the motherland is good in Russia and Stalin is good. And if you don't agree with Stalin, we're going to send you to a concentration camp. If you don't agree with the Nazis that their race is superior, then we're going to exterminate you. If you don't agree with Christianity, we're going to kill you, said the, the inquisitors. Well, of course, that was never condoned by Christ. That was the illogical outworking of Christianity, not the logical outworking of Christianity. Yet they used their ideology to do evil because ideology can hide the evil that you're doing under the guise of good. Now, everyone has an ideology. To deny one is to have one. You say, I don't have an ideology. Well, that's an ideology. I don't, I don't live my life by ideologies. Well, that's an ideology, right? Okay. But I get Solzhenitsyn's point here. You can put forth a set of ideas with such vigor, vigor that you dehumanize people who disagree with it. Your opponents become evildoers that must be stopped in the name of ideology. And we see that now in our country. For the left, anybody on the right is evil and must be stopped in the name of their ideology. And there are some on the right that look look at people on the left the same way. Now, of course, real evildoers must be stopped, but they should still be treated with respect as human beings made in the image of God. We did that with the Nazis. I mean, we treated them as human beings deserving of a fair trial. We, we brought them to Nuremberg. We just didn't say, okay, just shoot all these people. They're evil. We gave them the opportunity to make a defense. Yet, if you're going to call somebody evil, you have to have a standard. The question is, what is your standard? What is the standard that says what somebody else is doing is evil? What is the standard that says what you're doing is evil? The only standard that's objective is God's nature. If God doesn't exist, nothing's ultimately good or bad, right or wrong. Which means many of these people out there right now are protesting without a standard. They don't even believe in God, yet they're saying certain things are wrong or evil. They have no standard, so you can't reason with them. They just have a preference, and they're going to try and impose that preference by power. Back to Solzhenitsyn. Again, this is a commencement address at Harvard from 42 years ago, 1978. Here's what he says. When the modern Western states were created, the principle was proclaimed that governments are meant to serve man and and meant to serve men in men's 
lives to be free and to pursue happiness. For example, the Declaration of Independence. Now at last, during past decades, technical and social progress has permitted the realization of such aspirations. The welfare state. Every citizen has been granted the desired freedom and material goods in such quantity and of such quality as to guarantee, in theory, the achievement of happiness. In the morally inferior sense of the word, which has come into being during the, those same decades. Now, remember, he's writing in 1978, or he's speaking in 1978, that, that, that basically our happiness now is tied up in material things. He goes on. In this process, however, one psychological detail has been overlooked. And here it is. The constant desire to have still more things and a still better life and the struggle to attain them imprint many Western faces with worry and even depression, though it is customary to conceal such feelings. Active, intense competition fills all human thoughts without opening a way to free spiritual development. Yeah, it, I mean, if, if material things made us happy, we'd be the happiest nation in the world, but we're not. We're, lead, we're, we, we're, we're among the world leaders in suicide and drug use and divorce. These are all indicators of, of, hap, of unhappiness. We, 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 we don't know the meaning of life. We don't know why we're here, and we just try and fill it with all sorts of stuff. We have everything to live with, but nothing to live for. Ladies and gentlemen, the key to happiness and contentment is not your next cell phone upgrade. It's not technology. That may make your life more comfortable, but not happier, not more content. In fact, it may drive you the other way. When you've got all this technology bombarding you for your attention every day, when can you ever sit back and think about the real meaning of life or the real important things in life? You're being, you're being bombarded with distractions all the time. You can't even have a meal with somebody without looking at your iPhone. Back to Solzhenitsyn. The individual's independence from many types of state pressure has been guaranteed. Here in the U.S., he's saying, the majority of people have been granted well-being to an extent their fathers and grandfathers could not even dream about. It has become possible to raise young people according to these ideals, leaving them to physical splendor, happiness, possession of material goods, money, and leisure, to an almost unlimited freedom of enjoyment. So who now would renounce all this and why? Like, who comfortable and happy? Oh, we all want that. We get that. Here's what he says now. And for what should one risk one's precious life in defense of common values, and particularly in such nebulous cases, when the security of one's nation must be defended in a distant country? Even biology knows that habitual extreme safety and well-being are not advantageous for a living organism. Today, well-being and life of Western society has begun to reveal its pernicious mask. Okay, here's the translation. Anyway, from my perspective, I think this is what he's saying. We've become spoiled and discontented brats who can't seem to cope when even the slightest difficulty arises. Our Wi-Fi goes down. What a bad day. We can't go on. I don't get enough likes on social media. Nobody loves me. Gee, this is awful. Someone unlikes me. I can't believe it. You won't verbally or electronically support my cause. Silence is violence. Why don't you say something? What's wrong with you? I heard an idea that I don't agree with, so that person has to be shut up. That's basically what's being taught at our universities now. They're not preparing people for real life. As it's been said, we're creating snowflakes. Who, once the temperature gets above a certain degree, they just melt. They just can't handle life. They can't handle disagreement. 
We've become soft. Alan Dershowitz, a couple of days ago, who you know is not a Christian, he's a secular Jewish man. He has a column, and, and generally he's liberal. Uh, he, uh, in recent years, has has written in support of Donald Trump, but he's liberal in virtually all his political leanings. And he had a column about how the fact we're a shrill nation after the debate, and here's what he said. This is a paragraph from it. He said, we are a shrill nation more interested in making points than making sense. We do not respect our opponents' right to respond to their their arguments on their merits or demerits. Instead, we insult them, demean them, attack their motives, and accuse them of racism, sexism, homophobia, and every other ism under the sun. What we saw in that presidential debate, or, or, or we saw that in the presidential debate, and it did not surprise me, unquote. Basically saying, look, that's us. But we saw in the debate, that's us, that's what we do. And we're pointing our fingers at Trump and Biden going, you guys, are, look, we do that. Back to Solzhenitsyn, here's what he says. The defense of individual rights has reached such extreme. No, so it, it, let me stop here. A minute ago, he was talking about how it's great that, you know, this, the West has, has granted all these great material blessings and individual rights and all this. But he says it can go too far. Here's what he says. The defense of individual rights has reached such extremes as to make society as a whole defenseless against certain individuals. It's time in the West. It's time in the West to defend not so much human rights as human obligations. He says, destructive and irresponsible freedom has been granted boundless space. Society appears to have little defense against the abyss of human decadence, such as, for example, misuse of liberty for moral violence against young people, such as motion pictures full of pornography, crime, and horror, and in our day, we can add websites and social media. It is considered to be part of freedom and theoretically counterbalanced by the young people's right not to look or not to accept. In other words, well, if you don't like it, don't look at it. That's what he's saying here. Life organized legalistically has thus shown its inability to defend itself against the corrosion of evil. What shall we say about such criminality? Legal frames, especially in the United States, are broad enough to encourage not only individual freedom, but also some certain individual crimes. The culprit can go unpunished or obtain undeserved leniency with the support of thousands of public defenders. And I'm going to give you an example of this right when we come back from the break. We have people who are literally criminals being lauded for what they've done. And this is what Tolton Easton saying 42 years ago. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamine.org. We're back in just two minutes, so please don't go anywhere. This weekend, I'm going to be out in New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Hoffmantown Church. Got the morning service on Sunday. Then, going to do I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist that night. Everybody's welcome. Check our website, crossexamine.org, for events, and you'll see it there. And then on October 18th, I'll be out with the great Jack Hibbs at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. And in that, in those services, I'll be doing Does Jesus Trump Your Politics? Does Jesus Trump Your Politics? So as the election gets closer, I'll be having the privilege to speak to the great congregation there at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, uh, Chino Hills, California, not too far from L.A., maybe an hour from LA with traffic, six hours, but generally not too far. 
So anyway, I uh, hope to see you guys out there. We're talking today about why our country is split. And I'm actually going back to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, the Russian dissident who gave a brilliant commencement speech at Harvard in 1978. And I'm reading sections from it, commenting on it, and pointing out how it just fits our culture here today to a T. And so just before the break, I, I'd spoken about the fact that Solzhenitsyn was saying that that when culprits, let me just read what he said, the culprit can go unpunished or obtain undeserved leniency with the support of thousands of public defenders. He said this before social media in 1978. And one one place that this seems to be the case is in the uh, Jacob Blake case up there in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which caused all those riots. This man, Jacob Blake, was resisting arrest. He was already wanted for a, a, a crime when he when cops were called from a lady saying he's he shouldn't be here. There's, he, there's a restraining order against this guy. Anyway, the cops show up at this site. This Jacob Blake guy resists arrest, gets one of the cops in a headlock. He's tasered, and he gets away, and the cops then draw their weapons because he's going into his car allegedly to get a weapon when they say, you know, freeze, don't go in the car to get a weapon. Now, question, what are the cops supposed to do at this point? What choice do they have? He's already been tased. He's not going down. He's already resisted arrest, if, if these are indeed the facts of the case, and they appear to be. And he's not obeying their orders. He's going into the car to get something. What are the cops supposed to do? They got no choice, given the facts. They have to shoot the guy. They have to put him down. What if he takes a, what if he takes a weapon out and shoots them or starts shooting up other bystanders? That's their train. That's what they have to do. And yet people are claiming it's racism. And why, why do people come to the support of, of, of such a person? Just because he's black? Really? Now, if it's truly police brutality, oh, yeah, we're going to come to his support. But if the facts are what they are, no, he was a criminal who was resisting arrest and therefore was responsible for himself getting shot. Are the cops supposed to have to take the first shot when somebody's disobeying them? And this is what he's saying. This is what Solzhenitsyn is saying here. Now, look, if the, if the facts turn out differently, okay. But the facts as we know them now, that guy was guilty. He's not a hero. He's not somebody that should have leniency. He was the one responsible for his own downfall. And then Solzhenitsyn goes on to talk about, he says, when a government starts an earnest fight against terrorism, public opinion immediately accuses it of violating the terrorist's civil rights. And he says, there are many such cases. Well, gentlemen and ladies, there's no civil right to murder innocents through terrorism. Efforts to confront Islamic terrorism here in our country are called Islamophobia, as if it's akin to racism. Look, Islam's not a race, it's a behavior. There are people from all different races or ethnic groups. There's one race, the human race, in Islam. It's not, it's not, an, race has nothing to do with your behavior. But Islam is a behavior, and some in Islam believe terrorism to kill the innocent is a duty, or they would say kill the infidels. And, and people throw around Islamophobia as if there's something wrong with, as, as if it's kind of a, a prejudice without any, without any, any knowledge. It's not a prejudice to say that this is what some people in Islam believe. And here's why. Look at their history. Look at their scriptures. Look at their founder. Look at the last 1,400 years of history. It's not a phobia. 
Solzhenitsyn again. Such a tilt of freedom in the direction of evil has come about gradually, but it was evidently born primarily out of a humanistic and benevolent concept according to which there is no evil inherent in human nature. The world belongs to mankind, and all the defects of life are caused by wrong social systems, which must, be, which must be corrected. Strangely enough, though, the best social conditions have been achieved in the West, where there is still criminality, and there is even considerably more of it than in the pauper and lawless Soviet society. <laughs> He's pointing out that people are claiming here in the West that all our crime problems are due to social systems of some kind. It's all systematic. Now, that's not to say there might not be systematic problems, don't get me wrong. But the question is, who makes the systems? People. The people. If people were inherently good, they wouldn't make systems that were inherently evil or prejudiced in, in some way. And the truth is, we're not inherently good, which is exactly why socialism doesn't work. Solzhenitsyn will get, this, get to this in a few minutes. And it's exactly why we need security and police and a military and a government of separated powers, as James Madison famously said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. This is why defund the police has to be the most dangerous idea in modern politics. Defund the police. Sure, defund the police. Oh, reform the police, maybe, if, if, if they got something wrong. Yeah, absolutely. But defund them? Sure. Yeah, see how long civilization lasts if you do that. We're not angels. We're inherently bad. We're not inherently good. It's easy to be bad, hard to be good. So it's an instant again. Because instant, incredible information has been given, it becomes necessary to resort to guesswork, rumors, and suppositions to fill in the voids, and none, none of them will ever be rectified. He's talking about basically the press at this point. This is 42 years ago. Because, in, because instant, incredible information has to be given? Well, it's been amplified in the age of the internet now, and 24-7 news, and he's saying when they get something wrong, it's never going to be rectified. They will stay in the reader's memories. How many hasty, immature, superficial, and misleading judgments are expressed every day, confusing readers without any verification? The press. The press can both stimulate public opinion and miseducate it. Thus, we may see terrorists described as heroes, or secret matters pertaining to one's national defense publicly revealed, or may witness shameless intrusion on the privacy of well-known people under the slogan, everyone is entitled to know everything. But this is a false slogan, characteristic of a false era. People also have the right, here's what Solzhenitsyn's saying, people also have the right not to know. And it's a much more valuable one. The right not to have their divine souls stuffed with gossip, nonsense, vain talk. Gee, he's describing social media 42 years in advance. A person who works and leads a meaningful life does not need this excessive burdening flow of information, unquote. Solzhenitsyn, 42 years ago. And he's right. And by the way, we don't even know what information is accurate. I had uh, A.R. Bernard on the, uh, Reverend A.R. Bernard on our Hope One the other night. We were talking about what is biblical justice. He's the uh, pastor of one of the biggest churches in America up there in Brooklyn, New York. And we were both trying to figure out where do we get accurate information from? We don't even know where to get accurate information anymore. And by the way, were we meant to have an opinion on everything, to be an expert on everything? How could we know? This just adds stress to our lives that people are, you know, saying, well, what do you think about, I don't know, I haven't had a chance to research yet. And I don't even, I don't even know where to, where to get reliable information. 
I mean, in today's day, we've got to be comfortable saying, look, I haven't researched that. I don't know. I'm not sure where can I get accurate information. Denzel Washington once said, if you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. If you watch the news, you're misinformed. He's absolutely right. There's always these agendas going on. And you don't really know where to get it. You don't have to have an opinion on everything. We weren't meant to be all-knowing and, and have to post on everything that happens in the world. That's why these so much misinformation gets put out there because people go off half-cocked saying stuff they haven't even researched yet. But gen- ladies and gentlemen, there is an objective source of truth, and you can know it. If you study the evidence for Christianity, that gives you evidence for a secure foundation for our lives. My mentor, Dr. Geiser, always used to say, and he used to say this when he was in his 70s, the older I get, the more sure I am of the essentials of Christianity and the less sure I am about the non-essentials. So ladies and gentlemen, don't let the noise of the world drown out the word of God. Don't let the noise of the world drown out the word of God. This society where everything happens in an instant and we don't even know if it's credible is disorienting. Cling to the truth. Jesus is the truth. And you can get evidence that, it, that Jesus is the truth. Get our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Anyway, back to Solzhenitsyn. Here's what he says. Hastiness and superficiality, they are the psychic disease of the 20th century. And more than anywhere, you might as well say 21st century. <laughs> and more than anywhere else, this disease is reflected in the press. He goes on to excoriate the press and their biases. And look, ladies and gentlemen, this is me speaking now. Media bias is partially responsible for the divide, even in the debate the other night. Chris Wallace, for some reason, has to ask Trump about white supremacy while the country's being torn apart by the leftists of Antifa. He doesn't ask Biden about Antifa. He asks Trump about that. Why? Because Chris Wallace and many in the major media are pushing an ideology that refuses to acknowledge clear facts. They ignore Antifa and and amplify white supremacy, which Trump has said numerous times he doesn't support. And yet, if he doesn't do it every 12 seconds, somehow Trump is the problem. Now, look, I'm not trying to say Trump is right about everything. I'm not trying to say Biden's wrong about everything. I am trying to say, though, the media, Biden's wrong about a lot, by the way. The media is trying to push Biden across the finish line. And if that's not clear to you, you're not observing anything. There's no no even-handedness here. They are pushing an ideology. Trump gets 95% negative coverage. I mean, much of that he brings upon himself, but 95%? Satan wouldn't get 95% negative coverage. I mean, look at coronavirus. Now the president and the first lady apparently have it. But notice, it's the media. Governors and mayors saying protests are fine during the age of coronavirus, because why? That supports their ideology, but church services are not. Yeah, you... Church services aren't fine. You can't go to church, but you can go protest the United States of America with Antifa. That's fine. Do you see? They're ignoring clear facts, and they're, they're putting out orders that are biased to favor their ideology rather than the truth. And we need to recognize this. And if we don't, our country will fracture forever. But always remember, as I said at the top of the program, you have more in common with your political opponent than you have 
then, then what separates you? You're both made in the image of God. Treat everybody with respect. We got more from Solzhenitsyn right after the break. I'm Frank Turek of crossexamine.org. Don't go anywhere. Frank Turek with you. We're continuing with the speech that Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident, made 42 years ago at Harvard University at his commencement. There's so many insights in this speech that are relevant today and help explain the divide in our country today. Here's what Solzhenitsyn said as I'm continuing through his speech. He said, it's almost universally recognized that the West shows all the world a way to successful economic development, even though in the past years it has been strongly disturbed by chaotic inflation. Okay, in 1978, inflation was very high, so were interest rates. That's what he's talking about. But still, he says, however, many people living in the West are dissatisfied with their own society. They despise it or accuse it of not being up to the level of maturity attained by mankind. A number of critics turn to socialism which is a false and dangerous current. Do you see what he said this back 42 years ago? I'm sorry I keep repeating that. It just amazes me. He says, I hope no one present will suspect me of offering my personal criticism of the Western system to present socialism as an alternative. Having experienced applied socialism in a country where the alternative has been realized, I certainly will not speak for it. And he goes on to talk about a a book written by a uh, member of the Soviet Academy of Science Against Socialism. It's called Socialism. And then he says this, Socialism, or he says this book, is a profound analysis showing that socialism of any type and shade leads to a total destruction of the human spirit and to a leveling of mankind into death, unquote. This is Solzhenitsyn who lived under socialism. He was sent to the concentration camps, the gulag. And why is socialism? Why doesn't it work? Well, first of all, it's a fault of human nature. It thinks that human nature is inherently good. The truth is, as thousands of years of history and a moment's reflection on your own thoughts and motivations reveal, is that we are inherently bad, not good. It is easy to be bad and hard to be good. So if you apply this truth about human nature to economics, It shows you that you need to build a system based on private property rights because private property incentivizes people to work. If there's no private property, nobody's incentivized to work. That's why you will never wash a rental car. You don't care about it. You need to have incentive to work because we're all inherently bent toward evil and laziness. We have to have some ability to actually enjoy the fruits of our labor. This is what William Bradford discovered when he came to America with the pilgrims. When he tried to do socialism and plant and and farm the fields as a commune, it didn't work. When he gave everybody their own field and said, whatever you grow, you keep, it worked. They had more than enough food. It's easy to be bad. It's hard to be good. Here's what he writes in the Gulag Archipelago. He says, quote, talking about human nature, and his time in the Red Army, he says, there is nothing that so assists the, the awakening of omniscience within us as insistent thoughts about one's own transgressions, errors, mistakes. After the difficult cycles of such ponderings over many years, whenever I mentioned the heartlessness of our highest-ranking bureaucrats, the cruelty of our executioners, I remember myself in captain's shoulder boards and the forward march of my battery through East Prussia, enshrouded in fire, and I say, quote, so, were we any better, unquote? 
He was saying he was depraved just like the people executing people. Back to his speech. In spite of the abundance of information, or maybe because of it, the West has difficulties in understanding reality as it is. <laughs> That's the case right now. People can't even understand the reality, the difference between men and women now. We're having trouble here. The abundance of information. He says, we watched this process in the past centuries, and especially in the past decades, on a world scale as the situation becomes increasingly dramatic. Now, check this out. Here's what he says. Liberalism has inevitably displaced, or excuse me, liberalism was inevitably displaced by radicalism. Radicalism had to surrender to socialism, and socialism could never resist communism. The communist regime in the East could stand and grow due to the enthusiastic support from an enormous number of Western intellectuals who felt a kinship and refused to see communism's crimes. And when they no longer could do so, they tried to justify them. In our eastern countries, communism has suffered a complete ideological defeat. It is a zero, less than zero. But our Western intellectuals still look at it with interest and with empathy. And this is precisely what makes it so immensely difficult for the West to, under, to withstand the East. Yeah, why do liberal intellectuals and in universities support a system that has proven itself to spread misery, poverty, and death to humanity? Why is that? It's been proven not to work. It's a false view of human nature. It kills people. And yet, oh, we want it here in America. Really? Solzhenitsyn continues. Gee, I can't even get through all this. It's so rich. Let me see. What am I going to say here? Um, oh, he says, man is the touchstone in, in, in giving up spirituality. Man is the touchstone in judging everything on earth. Imperfect man who is never free of pride, self-interest, envy, vanity, and dozens of other defects. In other words, we're fallen, but we think we can create our own standards without God. This is what he's saying here. We are now experiencing the consequences of mistakes, which had not been noticed at the beginning of the journey. But he goes on to say that believing in God used to restrain our passions and our irresponsibility. We have placed too much hope in political and social reforms, only to find out that we are being deprived of our most precious possession, our spiritual life. In the East, you know, behind the Iron Curtain, it is destroyed by the dealings and machinations of the ruling party. In the West, commercial interests suffocated. This is the real crisis. The split in the world is less terrible. The split in the world is less terrible than the similarity of the disease plaguing its main sections. Translation, the split in our country is caused by us forgetting God. That's worse than the split in our country. In fact, he says this. If humanism were right in declaring that man is born only to be happy, he would not be born to die. Since his body is doomed to die, his task on earth evidently must be more of, more of a spiritual nature, or be more of a spiritual nature. It cannot be unrestrained enjoyment of everyday life. It cannot be the search for the best ways to obtain material goods and then cheerfully get the most of them. It has to be the fulfillment of a permanent, earnest duty, so that one's life journey may become an experience of moral growth, so that one may leave a life better human being, may, so, so that one may leave life a better human being than one started. Enhancing your capacity to enjoy God. You're becoming more like Jesus. These are my words now. He goes on to say this. It is, an in, it is imperative to review the table of widespread human values. Its present incorrectness is astounding. It is not possible that the assessment of the president's performance be reduced to the question of how much money one makes. Oh, it's all the economy. 
or the unlimited availability of gasoline. In his day, in 1978, gas was short. That's why he's saying that. Our voluntary, inspired self-restraint can raise man above the world stream of materialism. And then he says this. This is, again, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 42 years ago, Harvard commencement address. He said it would be retrogression to attach oneself today to the ossified formulas of the Enlightenment. Social dogmatism leaves us completely helpless in front of the trials of our times. Even if we are spared destruction by war, our lives will have to change if we want to save life from self-destruction. We cannot avoid revising the fundamental definitions of human life and human society. It is true that, or he says, is it true that man is above everything? Is there no superior spirit above him? Is it right that man's life and society's activities have to be determined by material expansion in the first place? Is it permissible to promote such expansion to the detriment of our spiritual integrity, unquote? In other words, are we just going to go for material things at the expense of our spiritual development? Is that really what we want? He ends the speech this way. No one on earth has any other way left but upward, period. Upward. And he says this about, in another context, I think he was interviewed about 1985, Solzhenitsyn said this, and he's talking about what happened to his own country, Russia, where 60 million people were killed, most of them by their own leaders. He said this, over a half century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and I've already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our own people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, quote, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened, unquote. He's got it right, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, it might actually be worse than that. We haven't just forgotten God. We think we are God. We think that our standards are better than his. We think we're smarter than Jesus. By the way, Solzhenitsyn became a Greek Orthodox believer, or an Orthodox, maybe a Russian Orthodox, now I think of it, but he was a believer in Jesus. And he's saying, we've forgotten God. Why is our country split? Because we've forgotten God. I wrote an article on our website back 2009. I've got to have written it today. You can go find it at crossexamine.org. Country a mess? Blame the church. Yeah, we're to blame because we have not been salt and light. We've brought, we haven't brought enough people to Christ or discipled enough people into Christ. We have forgotten God. 
and we wonder why our country split and two grown men can't have a civil conversation about the presidency of the United States and what they believe. Because they're just reflecting us, ladies and gentlemen. Remember, you have a lot more in common with your political opponent than you don't have in common. So treat everybody with respect. And don't forget God. Let's get back to him. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Frank Turk. Great being with you. Hope to see you here next week. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.